to enter a nexus of science, violence, and nonsense. Where fake news, pseudoscience, and weaponized stupidity meet full contact fact-checking and peer-reviewed ass-kicking. And as always, no bullshit allowed. Recorded live at Mosquito Headquarters in Austin, Texas. This is the Art of Fighting BS podcast. Brain chips in the trick. Chocolate lines up planetarily with the sun. Necessarily rewarding. You are fake news. Come on, man. Science is interesting. If you don't agree, you can fuck off. Let's do this. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the very next episode of the official Art of Fighting BS podcast, recorded live at Bullshito headquarters deep in the heart of Texas. I am your subcompetent host, Submessenger. This evening, we have starring Derek and our special guest, Professor Ben McJunkin, who is an associate professor of law at the Sandra Day O'Connor School of Law an associate deputy director of the Academy for Justice. He graduated with honors from the University of Michigan Law School. After law school, Ben clerked on the First Circuit Court of Appeals and worked at several prominent white-collar criminal defense firms. Professor McJunkin is an expert on the Fourth Amendment and contemporary policing, and his scholarly work has been cited in the United States Supreme Court. So, Professor, um, uh, what... What, what got you interested in law in the first place? Uh, just curious. I, I like to ask that kind of question. Oh, that's a great question. So I, my background is in philosophy originally. That's what I studied in undergrad. Uh, but I took some courses on the philosophy of law. And criminal law in particular fascinated me because I was always struck by the question of when is it ever okay for the government to harm its own citizens? Because right? ultimately, that's what punishment is. You're taking someone out of your community. You're locking them up. You're taking away their freedom. Uh, and in extreme circumstances, you might even be executing them. And that, to me, seems like it takes substantial justification. And so I got deeply fascinated in the question of what levels of justification uh, there could be for this to be an appropriate thing for the government to do to its citizens. And the more I got involved in that approach to thinking about the issue, the more I realized what I needed to do was to see law in practice. And so that's what took me to law school. Um, and from there on to a career in criminal law. Oh, okay, great. So, um, so you're, you're coming at this from a very altruistic perspective, which is uh, nice to hear. And I, I guess, I guess all lawyers do from the, the, the beginning. Um, but, uh, some people lose sight of, uh, the end goal along the way. So it's good to hear that uh, it sounds like well, you have a, a foot in that I, door of uh, being uh, fighting for the righteous. I mean, I'd, I'd like to believe so. I will say that I took uh, I took an unusual path to law school to begin with. Uh, I grew up relatively poor in a section of Southern California that doesn't tend to produce a lot of folks who go off to college, let alone something like law school. Most of my friends don't have graduate degrees of any kind. And I was more, honestly, I was closer to the criminal side of the equation than I ever was to the lawyer side of the equation as a youth. Uh, and so my perspective came at it from, from that. I understood what crime looked like. Um, I understood how people could get caught up in it. What I wanted to understand is the system that found its way into deciding what's criminal and the system that 
ultimately set the rules for when you can punish people. And then the more I got involved in that, the more that that led me to other aspects of practice. And so, in fact, my uh, my private practice was in white collar criminal defense. And so I, I I make no claims whatsoever that I was defending the virtuous in those circumstances. Although in general, I, I have to say I had some very good clients. I mostly represented corporations that were not intending to do anything wrong. Uh, and so uh, I feel okay about that work. But it, but I don't want to come off sounding like I've spent my entire career uh, defending you know, poor, innocent, indigent defendants. Well, no, definitely not, because uh, you started out uh, clerking at the uh, First Circuit uh, Court of Appeals for the United States of America. That sounds pretty exciting. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah, my first two jobs, actually, after law school were working for judges. And that's a fantastic opportunity for young law students to get a chance to see what the justice system looks like from the courtroom side of it, honestly. I mean, the, uh, in every other instance of your legal career, you're probably going to be working for one side or the other if you're a litigator of any sort. Uh, you work to represent your client's interests. And that's one of the only jobs that you get to have clerking for a judge where ultimately what you're working for is trying to find the right answer. You're working for some sense of justice, some sense of what's right. And to see the thought process of the judges involved, to see the way that different litigants represented themselves in court, whether different attorneys representing themselves or even sometimes individual defendants representing themselves. Uh, It just showed you what worked, what didn't, what was successful, what wasn't, but it also taught you the inner workings of the way in which our justice system works. And so that was a great learning opportunity. It made me uh, a much better writer, a more conscientious person. honestly, much more detail oriented and thought and and thoughtful than I was before. Oh, very cool. So I don't want to get too far off track, but I I wanted to ask, uh, what is that like? Do you go into a pool or are you working for a specific judge? Oh, yeah, that's not off topic at all. Uh, So ultimately what ends up happening is you work for a specific judge. You interview for particular judges and they select the clerks that they think would be a good fit. Different levels of courts sometimes have different systems. And so actually my first clerkship was on the Massachusetts Appeals Court, which is a state intermediate appellate court. And the ordinary practice in that court is a pool system. You would be hired by the court and then the judges would interview everyone collectively and they would more or less draft you. Uh, I didn't enter the pool system. I interviewed directly with a judge who wanted to hire outside of that. Uh, at the federal circuit level, you interview just with the judges who are interested in you, and it's really about your fit with a particular judge. And so I was on the first circuit, which covers most of New England, uh, and ended up clerking in Portland, Maine, in that instance, uh, with a judge who I think was a fantastic fit. But the fit is actually really important as well, because it's a quite secluded, uh, kind of secretive job. You're helping judges decide cases before any of the information becomes public. You're helping them think about things at early stages. You're helping them draft opinions and do research. And so uh, there it was basically four clerks and the judge and I in a secret office building. We'd, we weren't even in the courthouse uh, trying to mull over what the right and wrong answers to some really challenging legal questions were. And so uh, it really is important to have the right kind of fit so that you get the, the kind of working dynamic that you need to be working that closely in those long hours with somebody. Oh, pretty neat. So it's uh, a very uh, rigorous process, I guess. Uh, it sounds like that you went through. So uh, con- congratulations on that. Uh, oh, thank you. I appreciate it. So uh, we're here this evening to uh, dive into 
uh, the grand jury process. And, uh, you know, with us also is Derek. And uh, I think I'm going to let him kind of take the reins from here. Yeah. So what I, what I think is really interesting is just how little people know about the criminal justice process. Uh, Professor McJunkin talked about it a little bit as sort of his inspiration when he, he started learning about it in undergrad. But a great deal of people don't understand that process and can't visualize what it looks like. So what, I, what I'm going to talk about is how a crime gets from commission to a courtroom. And then uh, Ben is going to take over and talk a little bit more about some, some specifics. So a crime happens. And this is, we'll say, a, a felony-level offense committed at a, at a state jurisdiction. Um, there's a, a duality system in the U.S. where there's a federal criminal justice procedure and a state. For this one, we're going to focus solely on the state. Uh, mostly because state grand juries have been in the news quite a bit. So a crime gets committed and the well, police. So hold on. Out. Let me, let me, let me stop you right there. Cause I, here's already a question and uh, you know, I kind of know the answer, but I think it's uh, worthwhile to kind of cover this. Um, what is the difference? Like when would, when would you have a federal grand jury come in to, to work on something versus having a state grand jury or even something more local? That's a great question. Um, generally, it depends on the type of crime committed. If it's a federal crime being pursued by federal prosecutors, like um, Michael Cohen getting prosecuted for lying to Congress by the Southern District of New York, uh, that was a federal grand jury that returned those indictments. But let's say somebody punches somebody and causes a, a serious physical injury, like breaks their nose, breaks a tooth out or something like that, that wouldn't be handled by the federal government generally. It would be handled by the state. And because that's a, a felony crime in most states, it has really two ways of going from commission to the courtroom. So once police gather that evidence, they then submit it to a prosecutor for a charging decision. Now, the prosecutor, if they believe that there's the ethical standards, say probable cause to believe that the crime has been committed by the person accused of committing it. Now, I say probable cause, but most prosecutorial agencies actually use a standard called a reasonable likelihood of conviction. Or is it reasonable to believe that after trial, I can prove this defendant's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? So the evidence gets submitted by the police to the prosecutor, and the prosecutor looks at it. If it's a felony, a state prosecutor generally has two options. They can go for a probable cause determination in front of a judge. Uh, it's called a complaint or an information. They present that to the court, and then the defendant has the opportunity to be present, to have an attorney, to cross-examine witnesses, or the prosecutor can elect to take the case before the grand jury. Now, a grand jury, there is no defendant present. There is no defendant's attorney present. The prosecutor presents the evidence to a panel of 14 to 18, sometimes a little more, maybe a little bit less. Um, ordinary citizens who get briefed on the law and facts, and then they make a decision. If they determine that there's probable cause, then they issue what's called a true bill and return an indictment against that defendant. So um, the, the question I want to ask here is uh, certainly, as you've pointed out, we've, um, we've been hearing a lot about grand juries uh, in light of all of the fun stuff that we've had going on since May or so of uh, 2020. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, one of the things that I've heard in the news 
is, you know, so-and-so decided to turn this over to a grand jury rather than bringing charges himself. And kind of the question I have there is, you know, what is the decision-making process involved in going one way or the other? And, you know, is that something that can be politicized or, you know, leveraged for some sort of, uh, you know, higher gain of some sort? So the decision between going for a preliminary hearing or that probable cause determination between before a judge or going to a grand jury depends on a lot of different factors. The, the interesting thing about a preliminary hearing is that the testimony taken at it can usually be used as evidence because the defendant has had an opportunity to cross-examine the witness. Um, so prosecutors will sometimes elect to go to a preliminary hearing in order to preserve testimony. Um, other times, prosecutors elect to go to a grand jury for a bunch of different reasons. Um, one, it's sort of the default, the preferred process. Um, it takes, candidly, less time than a preliminary hearing. And it affords prosecutors sort of a, a check on them, to, you know, because at the end of the day, you have to convince 12 jurors of the defendant's guilt. And having a grand jury return an indictment sort of serves as kind of a fail-safe to a prosecutor, uh, prosecutor's discretion. If I can jump in here as well. Please, uh, please. I, yeah, I think that there's a couple other considerations that are relevant and that just depend on the state that you're in or whether you're in the federal system. So grand juries are required under the Fifth Amendment in the federal system for capital or infamous crimes, which has been interpreted to mean all felonies. Uh, without getting into it too extensively, felonies basically refer to any crime where you the potential penalty could include more than a year in prison. Uh, and so there's a there's a rule of procedure that allows the defendant to waive their right to a grand jury, but it's actually a constitutional right for federal felonies. And about half of the states have a system that mimics the federal system and so requires it for felonies as well, again, often with a waiver provision. Uh, and then about the other half, leave it up to the uh, to the prosecutor to decide which path to take. And so the, the path that Derek's talking about here, where sometimes prosecutors have strategic reasons for choosing uh, one over the other, those will take place only in that roughly half of the states that allow for some discretion in this without any of the defendant's input. I'll also note, just as a side note, the two states don't allow, don't have a grand jury system at all, uh, which makes them quite unusual in the grand scheme of things. That's great, great point. I appreciate that. Um, what, what I think I really want to want to get into now that we've kind of given everyone a, a sort of rudimentary understanding is why do we have the system? Why do we have grand juries? Why? What purpose did they originally serve? And is that purpose still being served today? Yeah, well, I can I can start this off, although honestly, the answer to that question depends on exactly how far back in history we want to go. Uh, and I am not a historian. I make no claims to be. Uh, but I will say that the origins of what looks like a grand jury system originated as far back as ancient Athens. Uh, our current version of the system is usually traced to something like 12th century England. And... There, many of what we would consider crimes now were tried in ecclesiastical courts, uh, so courts that were religious in nature. And England created a grand jury system 
in as a way of creating a separate set of secular courts that involved uh, searching out crimes. And mostly the the story. So the story goes, the reality of the system was that the the point of these secular courts was to generate revenue for the kingdom. Uh, I will say that in America, we've adopted this system in part because, and this is a little known fact, but uh, up until about the mid 1800s, it was possible for individual private people to bring prosecutions against their neighbors or community members. Uh, We didn't have the kind of separate system now where people were full-time prosecutors who represented the government all the, the time. It was rather similar and parallel to uh, to civil court systems where you could sue somebody who, say, owed you money. You could also go into court and claim that somebody had committed a crime against you. And so the point of the grand jury originally was to test the sufficiency of evidence that was being brought in instances like that. Um, so they had both the power to investigate crimes that traces back to, to early England, but also to operate as a check on people who might want to besmirch the, you know, their neighbors without sufficient evidence to actually demonstrate that they had done anything wrong. Uh, so it's, it's or historical origins operated sort of both as a sword and a shield um, in that way. And then now it's, it's a little different and actually honestly a little redundant of what the powers that we've entrusted to prosecutors. I think that's an interesting point. Um, I, I think some people might be asking, well, what's what's the point of testing the sufficiency of the evidence? If the evidence isn't good enough for probable cause, it's not going to lead to a conviction. What's the what's the harm there? I think some might be might be a question out there. What what would you say to that? Well, yeah, I mean the I, the original point of of the grand juries in terms of testing the sufficiency of the evidence was literally to decide whether or not there was enough evidence to proceed with a public trial. And this seems a little antiquated, I recognize, in, in our current information environment. But, you know, imagine back in the mid-1800s, if you went into a courtroom and you wanted to file charges saying that, you know, your neighbor had stolen something from you, rather than besmirch the reputation where you might not have any meaningful evidence, that this might just be a slanderous accusation, you had to go in front of a grand jury and explain to them all of the evidence that you had. You had to present all of the information that you would be uh, trying to present at trial and convince somewhere between 12 and 23 other community members that you should be entitled to go forward with a prosecution. And all of this happened behind closed doors. It was entirely secret. So again, you're not dragging someone's reputation through the mud unless you had enough evidence to move forward with an actual prosecution. And so the point there was literally to to stop people from slanderously accusing each other of crimes at a time when that was you know less easy to do. Now all we have to do is pop onto Twitter and say so and so is a giant criminal, uh, and we can achieve a lot of the same reputational damage that the grand juries were originally designed to protect against. But even even in modern times, if they're not there necessarily to protect reputational damage, I mean, going through being accused of a crime is a stressful event. It costs time. It costs money. It's still a public thing. So in a way, it still serves as a check on the ability of, of now the government to bring charges against a person. Um, but what some, what some of our listeners may not know is that ethical rules govern how a prosecutor operates, especially in these areas. And, and you talked about it before with how much power that's been entrusted to the prosecutor. Um, so in, in this sense, 
are grand juries still necessary or are they a redundant feature? Yeah, so I, I hinted earlier that my view is that they, they have a fair bit of redundancy only because our current system does entrust the prosecutors with a ton of discretion to proceed uh, on cases that they think are meritorious, where they think there's a high likelihood of conviction. Uh, and as lawyers working on behalf of the government, prosecutors have ethical obligations to try to only bring meritorious cases. And uh, they have a better understanding, frankly, of the evidence than, than the lay jury would. Uh, there is occasionally cases where prosecutors present evidence to grand juries and don't come out with indictments of some kind. Uh, those are pretty rare, honestly. The, the, we don't have great statistical evidence, but the information that we have is at the federal level, it's close to 99% of grand juries return an indictment of some kind uh, when presented with evidence. We think that it's probably close to about 95% at the state level. It could be higher. We're not entirely sure. Uh, but so in one sense, it seems redundant because prosecutors rarely fail if they actually wanted to bring an indictment um, and they present evidence to the grand jury. Most of the time, the grand jury doesn't stop them. That said, uh, I don't think that it's entirely redundant because one of the things that grand juries are supposed to represent is they're supposed to represent the view of the community about the seriousness of the evidence and the gravity of the crime. And so a simple example of this, although a controversial one at the moment, is the Breonna Taylor killing. So the grand jury there did return an indictment. In our statistics, they would show up as the prosecutor went to the grand jury and they returned an indictment. And setting aside the recent or recent uh, scandals about presenting the wrong kinds of evidence or not presenting sufficient legal theories, uh, we would view that as an instance of the prosecutor getting what they wanted. But it might very well be that there were other charges that the grand jury chose not to proceed with, right? that they didn't think there was sufficient evidence in. So it's a little hard sometimes for us to say, but the, I don't think that they're entirely redundant because that they do really represent the community's views on what is an appropriate charge in a given situation. And this actually goes back to one of the original questions about why sometimes it might be the case that prosecutors want to push that decision-making process onto a grand jury um, if you need a little bit of political cover, frankly, for a really challenging decision, a decision, especially one like prosecuting police officers, uh, it is certainly better to say that I ran all of the evidence past uh, a jury that represents a cross section of the community. And this is the charge they came up with or they declined to, to bring a charge rather than leaving that entirely on a single line prosecutor. So um, that actually. Uh, oh. Well, let me just jump in here for a sec, Derek. So um, kind of circling back, because you hit on some points that, um, you know, I had come up with a couple of questions during the last volley, and uh, I think it would be uh, good questions to bring up right now because they're pertinent. So number one, uh, my understanding is that for most, um, most prosecutorial positions are uh, political posts, are they not? So... It depends on how you want to define that. I, I don't think of it that way, only because the line prosecutors, the everyday prosecutors, um, are generally hired because they have strong merit. They were good lawyers. They were good law students. They have interest in it. They're not, those are not elected positions in most states. Uh, the people who run the office, the prosecutor's office, whether, for example, here in Arizona, right, we have elections for county attorneys. The county attorneys set 
prosecutorial priorities. And at the end of the day, that's where the buck stops in terms of some of these decisions. But, but individual prosecutors are not necessarily political. They might just be people who are committed to a particular view of what justice is, and they want to make sure that crimes are appropriately punished. Uh, and so I don't, I don't tend to view them as political figures. You, you touched on something there. It's, it's, I think it, it works well with, with the subject in general. You talked about the elected prosecutor setting the, the priorities of the office. Um, what does that mean? What does prosecutorial discretion mean to the average citizen or the person listening to this podcast? Yeah, so generally speaking, prosecutors have the discretion to decide whether or not to bring charges. Which and this is the, the elected prosecutor. Yeah, well, th- that's right. Um, but again, it depend- depending on the particular office, sometimes the- these initial decisions fall to the line prosecutors. They have approval by people above them. Uh, but the, the prosecutor's office, generally speaking, uh, has discretion to decide a couple of things. So one is they might have blanket authority to decide to not prosecute certain types of offenses. Uh, at a candidate who's currently running for county attorney here um, in Maricopa County, which is where I'm based, it has said out loud that if if she's elected, she will not prosecute um, any criminal abortions should Roe v. Wade be overturned. Right? That's within the discretion of the prosecutor. As a, as a political candidate, you can run on a platform of the things that you don't want to prosecute. Uh, but then in individual cases, prosecutors often have a ton of discretion to interpret the facts to try to find the most appropriate charge. Um, so they have to take a look at the evidence that the police bring them, think about it carefully, and figure out what the best fit is, what the appropriate sentence to go after is, how serious a particular crime is. One of the things that people might not realize is that we have innumerable criminal laws in this country. Uh, and when I say innumerable, I mean that quite literally. The The sad reality is that we actually aren't able to count how many criminal laws we have because a lot of criminal statutes, especially at the federal level, incorporate millions of regulations um, and other minor infractions. And so uh, there's so many crimes that we literally don't have an, an idea of how many there are. Uh, and it's entirely in the prosecutor's discretion to decide what the appropriate charges are for any given set of facts. Now, they're ethically obligated to try to do that earnestly and you know, with deference to the legislative scheme that they're operating under, um, they're doing it on behalf of the citizens. Uh, but at the same time, it just there is a lot of room for them to maneuver, whether it's deciding that something is more serious or less serious, whether deciding that a particular set of activities constitutes several crimes instead of one crime. So there's there's a couple different layers of discretion that we can be talking about. Right. And so, you know, an, an important thing to recognize there is that the legislative process, uh, which determines these crimes, um, often lags popular opinion. So uh, having the room to maneuver as a prosecutor may, uh, um, you know, better reflect a democratic opinion of what priorities should be for the community. Right. Absolutely. Right. So the, there's a couple realities that we face. One is that uh, it is really hard to get laws passed. And so it might be that, uh, you know, it takes a while for for legislation to change. It is it is harder to get laws repealed 
So once something is on the books as a crime, it takes a lot, lot of effort to get it off of the books as a crime. And that's an area where prosecutorial discretion to choose not to charge something can be really important to the extent it reflects community values. Uh, beyond that, one of the things that I always try to say is that legislative drafting is a really challenging task. Imagine any time that you've ever gotten something like Ikea furniture and had to try to figure out how to assemble it, right? Or uh, maybe you've got a bicycle or some toy for a child and you try to put it together using instructions. Legislation is like instructions. You have to anticipate in advance all the different scenarios that people are going to screw things up and decide what falls in and what falls out of the statute. The beauty of prosecutorial discretion at some level is that they get to look at the facts of a given case and try to understand, does this actually reflect the kind of bad behavior that the legislature was trying to capture? Uh, and so that's another component of it is sometimes laws are drafted with really overbroad language to ensure that it captures all of the worst things. Um, but it's up to the prosecutors to decide whether something is actually, you know, in a given situation as bad as deserving of particular punishment or as bad as deserving of being charged in a particular way. So they're a lot more on the ground and focused on individual type of circumstances. So in a, in a sense, they have the capacity to bring more justice and more mercy than our legislative scheme would otherwise allow. So and uh, for the boys and girls listening at home, we call that uh, checks and balances. <laughs> speaking speaking of checks and balances so i i am a state prosecutor i prosecute state crimes in state courts if i take a case to a grand jury i have an i have a an affirmative duty imposed case law and by statute to present exculpatory evidence to the grand jury if i don't do a good enough job the defense can challenge that later in court and then the court can kick it back to the grand jury for a full presentation of everything in the case that's relevant for a new probable cause determination. Is that the way it works in every grand jury system? No, actually, that's pretty unusual. Uh, frankly, one of the primary critiques of the grand jury system is that prosecutors are not required to disclose exculpatory evidence. On top of that, uh, and let's just make this sort of clear for the audience how this works. The standard picture of the grand jury is that uh, the prosecutor leads the grand jury uh, behind closed doors. This is uh, all of the information that happens there is secret unless you get something like a court order that unseals it. Uh, the prosecutor is allowed to choose what evidence to show the jury, uh, is not typically required to show the jury exculpatory evidence. And in fact, is typically allowed to show the jury information or, or evidence that would not be admissible in court. Uh, so sometimes you might have proof that someone committed a crime and for various other technical procedural reasons, that proof would not be allowed in the actual trial of that defendant. But you can introduce it to the grand jury and say, here's some additional evidence to help convince you that we believe this person is the right person to be bringing these charges against. Uh, so... The typical critique is that the prosecutors can kind of lead grand juries along to, to reach whatever conclusion the prosecutor wants them to, which is why the claim of redundancy uh, is so strong, especially lately. It, it, the notion that the grand juries are doing some independent kind of investigation or that they're presented with a fair recounting of all of the evidence that might come out at trial is simply not the case in most states most of the time. 
So well, you why, mentioned that. Why it, is that? Sh- I keep <laughs> I keep stepping <laughs> on you, Derek. Sorry. Why? 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 Why can a prosecutor in those jurisdictions that allows it um, present inadmissible evidence to a grand jury that wouldn't be admissible at trial? Yeah. So the the reality of the situation is that there's something that happens. Well, I mean, it, there's a couple of different justifications for it these days, but. Uh, the threshold for bringing a case is different than the threshold for conviction. It's drastically different. As you mentioned, the typical standards that prosecutors are working under has to do with likelihood of achieving a conviction because ultimately a conviction is the goal. But legally, the only amount of evidence that's required is probable cause to believe that a particular person committed a particular crime. And probable cause is not a very high standard of evidence. When you get to trial, you have to convince uh, a small jury or a judge, depending on the type of trial, uh, that the person committed the crime beyond a reasonable doubt, which is a drastically different standard. But in between those two processes, two things happen that are that are central. One is after an indictment has been filed, there's additional opportunities for discovery. At the trial itself, there will be testimonial evidence that can be introduced and used. So there's going to be more evidence that gets adduced at a later point in time. The other thing that is a more contemporary justification is that we live in a system of plea bargains, something approximating 95% of all criminal charges that are filed get uh, end up getting resolved with a plea bargain. And so if you have drop dead slam dunk evidence that somebody say committed a murder and you know that you won't be able to use that evidence at trial, still securing an indictment with the right person ensures that you have a good chance at getting them to plead to guilty to something um, so that they still end up getting punished for the crimes they committed. I think this is one of the things that's, that a lot of people struggle with, ordinary citizens struggle with, is that our legal system is designed, especially at the evidentiary level, it's designed to put the government through its paces pretty dramatically in order to achieve a conviction. But I think a lot of people intuitively also want people who actually commit crimes in fact, not just the people who have been proven beyond a reasonable doubt to have committed, but people who actually committed crimes, they want them to pay for those crimes. And so the grand jury system sort of operates in this middle ground where it ensures that it gets a full glimpse of all of the relevant evidence. So on behalf of the community, it can charge someone and say, we believe this person committed that crime, but then the subsequent proceedings still require additional levels of evidence before you can convict and punish. So uh, let me back up here oh, just no, a minute because no. I had a I had a question that came up uh, based off of something you had said, <laughs> Professor. <laughs> um, so you were talking about the uh, grand jury process being a, a secretive, behind closed doors kind of process, and uh, in general terms, people were not allowed to speak about it unless there was some sort of uh, an unsealment or something like that happen. Uh, it seems to me whenever we see a grand jury in the news, you know, it's a high profile case. And within, you know, weeks or even days, we have the jurists out there giving opinions to the media about what they thought should have happened. Are there specific rules that govern what they can and can't say, or is it like a blanket gag order? So in most states, there is a blanket rule going into the grand jury process 
that aside from the witnesses who might testify before the grand jury, the witnesses who testify are really allowed to talk about their own observations. Uh, the jurors themselves are not supposed to be talking about the process. Uh, they actually risk contempt of court if they were to reveal information that was provided to them. Sometimes this still comes out without attribution. Um, people will, will release information even at that risk, uh, hoping that they remain anonymous. But the point of the secrecy rule, honestly, is that we don't want information coming out. One, we don't want information that wouldn't be admissible at trial to be coming out. Uh, we don't want to give away information about who might have been testifying against certain people. Uh, this is All of this is information that ordinarily, if you think about this sort of prosecutor uh, information or complaint approach as the default approach, ordinarily this is all information that only the prosecutor would have. And so by sharing it with other people in, in the grand jury process, you're putting at risk the secrecy of a certain kind of investigation. This makes way more sense to me given my practice in white collar crime, because often these grand jury proceedings would last for weeks, sometimes months on end. Uh, and in the process, one of the things that our clients often didn't know is who the defendant was going to be. So the a, a prosecutor could bring information or evidence to the grand jury, including bringing in witnesses to testify uh, without ever telling anyone that this is ultimately to try to secure charges against a specific person or against a specific company. Uh, so all of that level of secrecy is is supposed to reflect the idea that uh, at some level what the grand jury is doing is operating as a version of what should be the prosecutor's internal calculations, right? So it's a, it's a public check on the prosecutors, but it's a public check that still happens in the same way that Ordinarily, these considerations would be happening within the prosecutor's offices themselves. And and those are actually really good, really good points. And the question was asked earlier: Why would a prosecutor go with one or the other? And I think another reason that is exactly what you hit on: that especially in, in violent crimes or in complex white collar crimes, you don't want the the targets of those investigations to know who the witnesses are, what they've said. Um, it, it brings up witness safety issues. It brings up integrity issues um, with the case. Um, so, I mean, I think that that there's a lot of reasons why why there's why the, the choice is made between one or the other. Um, well, you also might not want to prejudice the jury, right? So, Lady Justice is blind by the same secrecy that the pro uh, professor was just talking about. Right, and a preliminary hearing would be open to the public, whereas a grand jury obviously isn't. Um, Turning to the the Brianna Taylor killing, and I, I don't want to get too into the weeds because there's so much that we don't know. I don't want to get into you know what should have happened, what could have happened. Um, what I've what I've seen online is there's kind of two camps that I've seen. Is the one is that the prosecutor absolutely should have pre presented criminal charge or homicide charges, homicide being the the, the death, um, homicide charges to the grand jury, and the other one is saying. Well, as as representatives of the community, there's a chance in a case like this where the their better judgment may have been overtaken by emotions. So in that sense, the prosecutor sort of serves as a check maybe on the grand jury. What what do you kind of make of that? Yeah, I think that the 
typically the, the risk is the other way around, which is the concern is that a grand jury would decline to bring an indictment uh, that a prosecutor believes there's sufficient evidence for because of some reason for, that the community believes that that crime is either not sufficiently serious or something else about the people involved. This is a particularly unusual case where there is some generalized concern that uh, an indictment might be brought simply because of the broad public outcry. But I think that if it's within the province of the uh, of the grand jury to consider the evidence and if we entrust them with the ability to make these kinds of decisions, I'm of the opinion that they shouldn't be deprived of the ability to consider all possible charges that fit the fact pattern. And in fact, one of the things that um, some legal scholars have been advocating for, not just recently, but over the last handful of years, is the idea of a non-prosecutor legal advisor that operates in the grand jury room simply to answer jurors' questions about the state of the law. Because this is one area where having a public check on prosecutors is ineffective. The thing that the prosecutors have that the public doesn't is knowledge of the universe of potential charges and what the elements of those charges might be. And so to the extent that the jury is not educated about what the law might be, about what charges might be possible, uh, then they don't do a very good job of reflecting the public sentiment. Certainly there's always some concern that maybe they overreach, but typically the concern is the other way around. So I'm less, I'm less bothered by at least allowing them to consider uh, all possible charges that fit the fact pattern or that arguably fit the fact pattern. If you leave it entirely in the hands of the prosecutor to select the charges that the jury gets to consider, then it makes the jury even more redundant than they already were. It operates as a one-way ratchet. So they can only bring as much of the charges that, as the prosecutor wants, or they could bring less, but they can never bring more than the prosecutor considers. Uh, and it might be that there are certain circumstances where the community demands a kind of justice that the prosecutor is not attuned to. And so if we really want, if we want the grand jury to operate as a kind of communal input, I think that we need to give them that power. So and, that's a question and, that I had earlier um, that I think that you just kind of answered um, was that uh, is there any situation in which a grand jury could um, opt for charges that the prosecutor did not present? So ordinarily, no. And part of the reason for that is that they also wouldn't be aware of what those charges would look like. Uh, that. Again, imagine yourself, right? If you were impaneled on a grand jury and you're presented a bunch of evidence, you would also typically be presented with a set of potential charges saying, you know, it's up to you to decide whether or not the, the, the evidence fits these charges. But it's the prosecutor who selects the potential charges that you're informed about, that you're taught about. And it's unlikely that there's a grand jury system out there that would allow the grand jury to look at the evidence, look at the set of charges that the prosecutor provided, and then say, we're also interested in other crimes that you haven't told us about that we think might be better fitting, right? That's just legal information that in general, the, the jury wouldn't have access to, wouldn't know much about. They might ask questions, but again, if the prosecutor doesn't provide it to them, there's nobody else in the room that educates them about this. And so that's, I think that's been the call for reform, um, at least in one sense, is, is that there needs to be a something like a nonpartisan um, legal resource, almost like a legal librarian that uh, the grand jury might have access to. Uh, so, so that 
can make those decisions themselves. Are, are lawyers precluded from serving on a grand jury or any jury for that matter? Oh, I mean, not at all. No, no, they're not precluded at all. Uh, but again, I mean, I think, uh, and Derek, you might be able to talk about, I don't know if you have experience with this, but in general, right, the process uh, is one where the primary counsel to the jury, that is the, the, the singular lawyer who is there to inform the jury about the process itself and how they're to go about their deliberations and all of that, like the, the prosecutor is that for them. Uh, even for witnesses that come in, they don't have additional counsel that's there with them to help them through the process. Uh, and so there really isn't uh, much exposure to anything outside of what the prosecutor makes available to them. I, I think a really good example of what, what uh, Professor McJunkin was talking about, uh, a lot of states have very complex theft statutes. And a single act could be multiple different types of theft depending on different um, different factors that may or may not exist. But there's a lot of options with a complicated statute like theft in, in many jurisdictions. Um, it would be unreasonable to think of the layperson to to have a working knowledge of all of those different variations of theft to decide what the best option is. So if the prosecutor presents and says, this is the charge that we're seeking an indictment for, you know, this is what it is. Here's the definitions. Um, here's what the law says. The jury is not going to go hunting through their statute book to say, well, you know, is there something better? Um, which may be a bug, may be a feature, um, but it, it definitely is a component. And, and one of the things that, that Ben talked about earlier with how many criminal laws we have on the books, the lay people as a prosecutor, I don't know every single law on the books. It's un impossible to believe a lay person would. Yeah. I mean, and if we think about it, that's, I think the theft example is a great example. If a prosecutor comes in and says, you know, I think that this is uh, a class two felony theft and provides the jury with information about what that means, right? That is, they provide, here's the legal standard, here's the elements that would be required. It, I, I do want to jump in real quick. I'm sorry to cut you off, Ben. Um, there is an ethical obligation to present what's called lesser included offenses. Mm -hmm. So, so like Ben was saying, they can return less, but they can't return more because of just yeah. how the function of the system is. No, that's right. Right. So they would be educated about the lesser included, but it's not as if the jury then gets to ask, well, you know, is there a more serious crime that could have been brought? Is there a firearm enhancement for this theft that you didn't tell us about? Is there, right. There's a lot of layers that go into prosecuting cases um, and figuring out how to charge cases that I think an ordinary jury just wouldn't even know to begin to think about asking the question. Uh, so then, I think that's a big part of it, honestly. So, so oh, go ahead, go ahead, Lyndon. Okay, so I mean, I'm I'm not really sure where we're at as far as this overall topic, but I did uh, I did field a couple of questions from our regular audience and. I wanted to try and slip one or two of those in. Uh, one I think is particularly pertinent right now is um, do we have uh, or is there any sort of a judicial re review that happens as the result of a grand jury decision? Like can can a judge say, well, no, you can't really do that. So I think that's not. That's, uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead so in, in the state in which I practice, there is a mechanism for a defendant to challenge 
the sufficiency of the evidence. So if they don't think that enough exculpatory evidence was presented properly, if they don't think the law was briefed correctly, they can have the matter remanded back for a different determination. Um, but as, as we've learned, this system varies dramatically across the states. So yeah, I mean, I off, man. I, no, this is great because uh, I it's one of the things that, that I was saying sort of before we started recording is that I've primarily worked my career in criminal defense. And what that means is that uh, I've actually never even gotten to be behind the doors of a grand jury room. So I, I appreciate getting to hear Derek's perspective on this. Uh, but the yeah, in most states, the reality is that there's not much of a mechanism for judicial oversight, certainly not much of a mechanism for judicial second guessing. And in fact, one of the challenges that comes along with the secrecy is that uh, much of what happens in the grand jury room isn't even made part of a, a meaningful record. So in many states, for example, this is one of the things that I wanted to come on, uh, think about in response to your last question. In many states, there's no record made of the way in which the charge is described to the grand jury. Um, there's no record made of the particular instructions that the prosecutor gives about the charge. And this is particularly important to lawyers because if you think about it, a criminal trial, the parties tend to fight tooth and nail over what the jury instructions will look like for the for the pettit jury, for the small for the actual trial jury. Uh, but with the grand jury, there's not even a record of how the charge was described. And so the ability of judges to come in after the fact and reassess the evidence and supervise, there's there's usually a procedure sort of like what Derek describes for uh, a petition to say that there was there's absolutely insufficient evidence um, and that it needs to be dismissed on those grounds. Uh, but in, in general practice, there's just not enough of a record for that to be a viable option. Oh, and then one other thing, by the way, this is, I just get a kick out of this, but if the, if the grand jury for whatever reason decides not to bring a charge, uh, double jeopardy doesn't attach to the grand jury proceedings because no actual charge, no has charge been filed. was brought. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you don't like the outcome of your grand jury, you could bring the exact same evidence right back to another grand jury. And so the same thing would happen if a judge were to, uh, to decide that there was insufficient evidence for a particular grand jury charge and somehow nullified the charge. That doesn't prevent you from going back to another grand jury and doing it again. So is the uh, jury selection process for a grand jury any different than, than uh, petty jury? Yes. Uh, so in general, there's not the same kind of selection process. And certainly there's not an adversarial selection process that includes striking um, particular jurors. So the, the grand jury process is more uh, considered a, a, an extended kind of civil service where you're you're accepting the people sort of as they are um, with let, I mean, I'm curious about the Arizona system to see if there's any a nuance to it, but, but there's not the, um, the, the sort of what what is the name for it that we're not, that we're used to seeing in uh, say dramatic depictions of what lawyering is like. You don't interview all the jurors and strike a handful of them. Uh, there are just people who are selected and become your sitting jury for some lengthy period of time. Hmm. Interesting. Go ahead, Derek. You got the reins. So, so <laughs> in the the overall criminal justice, looking at it from the the thirty thousand foot view, uh, as as it were, um, crime to courtroom, the grand jury process would be kind of in the middle. Um, 
But you're not just an expert on criminal law and and grand juries. You're also a, a renowned scholar in terms of contemporary policing, uh, particularly police reforms. So I just want to take a few minutes with the time we have left to jump to that first part about what the police do, what they are, what's happening these days, and is there anything that can be done about it? Yeah, well, so, I mean, in terms of what the police do and, and who they are, I hope that your audience has a pretty decent sense uh, of, of what the police is as an institution. But what I'll say on that, that the thing that's most interesting about the contemporary debates on policing, and I'm glad that we get to talk about this, um, honestly, one of the reasons that I like thinking about grand jury stuff is because grand juries are frequently used in the decision whether or not to prosecute police officers uh, for conduct in the line of duty. And so I think the two overlap quite well. But the, the thing that is at the core of contemporary debates around policing is the, the instances of seemingly excessive use of force and what to do about that. So the definitive feature of police officers is that they have a legitimate monopoly on using force in our society. Right? They solve problems, um, often either using force or with the threat of force backing them in ways that we couldn't, right? If my next door neighbor is making too much noise, I can't threaten to beat them up because to do that would be a crime. Uh, in addition, I would probably have to pay them some civil damages. I can't do anything to intimidate them. I can ask them politely to quiet down. And if they don't, then the next step is I call the police to come and do it for me. And so we have this institution of people who have been selected from the community in order to be the enforcers of laws, uh, and at the same time, when that power goes awry, especially when it happens in sort of very public ways, it has people questioning what balance needs to be struck between achieving law enforcement and achieving community safety in a broader sense. Uh, and so that's that's where I think the center of the debate right now is really breaking down what the purpose of policing is into a handful of objectives, right? Is the goal of policing to... Uh, to catch every law violator, to stop every speeder, to stop every jaywalker, to, to catch everyone who has you know, some amount of drugs? Is, is it to enforce laws that way? Or is it to prevent crime altogether? Um, if the goal is to prevent crime, there might be other methods and other techniques that we can use. And then frankly, most of the time, we're using police as social service providers as well. They do a lot of work with homeless communities. They are almost always the first person to uh, be called out to mental health emergencies. Uh, and they, they do some sort of social problem solving. I use the example of, of my noisy neighbor precisely because, you know, think about how often police are called to things that are non-criminal whatsoever, uh, but just to resolve disputes between people. And so if, if those are the functions, if it's not simply about catching criminals, there might be other mechanisms that we could be using or other structures in society that we could be using to accomplish some of those ends that don't come with the risk that force might get misused or misapplied. And so I think that's where the heart of the contemporary debates are. So uh, a, a big portion of our user base, um, we talked about a little earlier, we've got a lot of veterans, we have a lot of law enforcement, first responders, and people who are very sympathetic um, to law enforcement and first responders. Um, what, what I wanna give them is an idea of what, what criminal justice reform actually looks like. Because we're bombarded with all of these messages, defund the police, don't defund the police. Well, what, what does that mean? Where do police budgets come from? What are they focused on? And what does defund the police really mean? What does good criminal justice reform really look like? 
Uh, well, so the first thing I'll say is that uh, policing is incredibly local. Uh, there's something like 18,000 different levels of law enforcement agencies across the country, some with overlapping jurisdictions, but often with um, with exclusive, mutually exclusive jurisdictions. And so, uh, you know, each individual city or town will often have their own uh, will often have their own police force. Outside of that, in the unincorporated areas, there's often county sheriffs, there's state police that um, operate highways and interstates. Uh, you know, there's obviously federal agencies that have law enforcement authority. And so each of those has their own funding sources, but um, typically they're drawn from the municipal level, depending on where, like what, what sort of level they're associated with. And they come, you know, a lot of it comes from tax revenue. So one of the reasons that we're invested in this defund the police question is if you take a step back, the question is, is at some level, uh, what is the best use of tax dollars to achieve uh, the kind of society that people want to live in? And that, that society, I will say, is often, um, it's, it has conflicting goals. So one is we all want to live in a safe society, right? We don't want to be overridden with crime. Uh, but there is increasing scholarly research, for example, that suggests one way to reduce crime is to provide better education. So if we spent a few dollars less on policing and a few dollars more on our public school system, would that reduce crime more? Or would it reduce crime less? Like these are the kinds of debates. When we're talking about defunding, it's not simply taking away money from police departments, but it's uh, a debate about appropriate allocation of resources. Uh, one other thing I will say on the funding issue though that I think, uh, uh, especially if you have a lot of veterans as an audience listening, uh, I'll, some non-substantial, or sorry, sorry, some not insubstantial portion of municipal police budgets comes from federal grants because local police officers often do work that benefits federal governments, uh, including arresting people for crimes that ultimately get charged as federal crimes and uh, things along those lines. And so uh, another component of this challenge is that some amount of the money is not directly tied to the local purse, which also means that there's questions about how much the locality should be involved in these kinds of decisions. Uh, and many of those grants are provided through links to um, the military as well. So uh, one of the biggest grants, there's something called the 1033 program that actually allows local police departments to get decommissioned military equipment, sometimes for free, sometimes at relatively low cost. Uh, and so one of the ways that departments fund themselves is through these kinds of federal programs that allow them access to things that they might not be able to afford or that their municipality might not want to spend the money on for them. Uh, so there's, there's a sort of a tension there sometimes between the federal level and the local level. What what does does anything happen to those departments? Are there any trends that, that you've seen in your research about what happens to those police departments that invest heavily in um, heavy equipment and military equipment? So the biggest thing that I've been privy to and that I've been exposed to is there there tends to be more community resentment. Uh, and this leads to a, a certain kind of policing mentality that has been deemed to be problematic by some people. And this is this is ultimately one of the big challenges, by the way, of working in this area is that uh, organizations have culture but they also have a set of enforcement priorities or a particular kind of enforcement strategy that gets set at the top. 
And there's an active debate right now uh, in the academic research around policing about what the appropriate strategies are uh, and the appropriate kind of culture that needs to be set. Uh, a big part of that right now, one of the big movements that a lot of people, I mean, really since, honestly, the um, since the Clinton administration, uh, one of the big movements has been towards something called community policing that is more about getting police engaged with their community and police community partnerships to sort of do some problem solving. And we've seen that that results, there's a lot of setbacks in that goal, if that is a goal of the departments, uh, for the departments that rely extensively on heavy equipment, on military style armor. Uh, you know, if, if the Phoenix PD went walking down Main Street in camouflage, dressed like they were going to war, it alienates the members of the public in a certain way, because then suddenly the police don't feel like they're part of the community. They feel like an occupying force. And so this is this is a big part of the concern is that if it creates that kind of tension, the result has often been that departments start to view the public as out to get them or anti or, you know, anti-police or and frankly, that there are some people who are explicitly anti-police, um, often in ways that are very violent. Not it was a couple weeks back that there was a. a active shooting where people fired on a police car just because they're police and they wanted, uh, you know, to inflict violence on police because they dislike them. And so the more there's that tension between the community and the police, uh, the more it's going to lead to a department that's relatively insular and the more it's going to thwart goals of com like cooperation and community that are probably the most effective and most attainable strategy to reducing violence. It, it sounds like when when you put barriers between the community and the police departments who are supposed to serve that community, that it's it's bad for both the community and for the police officers. There's been an uptick in violence against police officers um, since May um, for various reasons. Um, so what 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 things have have departments done around the country to reduce that tension between the community and the police? So the biggest thing um, that, that departments have been investing in is, is as I said, this, this vision of policing is something called community policing. The central tenets of community policing are that uh, the police are, are part of the community, the community is part of the police. Uh, and so to understand the the way in which police can benefit the community, it needs active partnerships. Uh, so the idea is supposed to be to take police, say, out of their patrol cars, put them more on foot, to have more interactions with people that are non-enforcement interactions. So have police officers go up and start chatting with people under circumstances where there's no possibility that they're going to be um, say, doing a warrant check or trying to find out information to incriminate somebody, but rather to understand, well, what's going on with your neighborhood? You know, what are the problems here that, that you're addressing? Uh, what is it that you run into every day that's been an issue for you that maybe the police can help you with? Uh, typically, these are uh, also done through sort of listening tours where police officers will hold open forums. Uh, if, I mean, the, the stereotypical version is imagine something like the Parks and Rec uh, forums, right, where the community can like, come voice their opinion. with a cop. Yeah, right. So, yeah. so I mean, we've, we've had programs like this for various points in time, but the idea, really the idea is supposed to be uh, that there's a two-way line of communication. 
And so the police can explain to the to the public, here's what we've been doing. Here's what we think is important. Here are our concerns about your neighborhood. And then the public can explain, well, here are our concerns about our neighborhood. And also, here's how we think you've been doing. So you get the sort of feedback and collaboration between what's going on with the community and how they're perceiving the the act of policing and then what the police think they're doing as well. So that's been the primary model up until really this summer. Uh, So this summer is when we first really actively started hearing more calls for defunding and resource reallocation. Um, Yeah, so so prior to that, it it had primarily been trying to figure out ways to humanize uh, the community to the officers and the officers to the community so that we don't have those barriers between them. So isn't there also a responsibility on the community to engage with the police in a friendly manner? So there is, um, I, and this is one of the things that I try to teach that's often a bit of a struggle um, for my students, is that you can't have the kinds of transformational reforms that people want to see in policing without there being uh, a substantial investment by members of the community to, to try to embrace the tactics being used. So it can't just be that the department decides, hey, we're going to start community policing today and they're going to go walk around the neighborhoods and say hello to people and and hope that people want to say hello back. Uh, There's been a lot of communities, especially communities of color, that have over time developed uh, a pretty strong distrust of policing that often call police, for example, when they're in emergencies. And so without having some investment back, uh, it's it's challenging to know whether some of these strategies will work. The One of the biggest uh, complaints, honestly, about a community policing strategy is that it might take a long time to regain the kind of trust that's been lost so that both sides are actively participating. And there are people who simply don't think that they have that level of time given the amount of violence that we're seeing in our society. Um the community policing, you talked about how it was a relatively recent trend. I think another um, sort of approach that our user or our listeners may uh, be familiar with is also broken windows policing, which is the idea that if you if you heavily police minor infractions, that it will remediate more serious crime or prevent more serious crime down the road. Did that help lead to the disenfranchisement of these communities and their law enforcement officers? It did. Uh, Although, so the thing about broken windows that is, I think, interesting is that the theory of broken windows, as you noted, is that heavy enforcement uh, uh, and focusing on, on minor crimes and crimes of disorder. So things like loitering places, you're not supposed to be being drunk in public, disorderly conduct. uh, The, Policing those things would overall reduce more serious crime because in an orderly community, you wouldn't have a lot of serious crime. And so focusing police resources on minor infractions in order to avoid serious crime from happening is the, is the goal behind the theory. But the I, I way- think that, Yeah, go ahead. I think that at first blush, it, it's one of those things that you look at and say, okay, that makes sense. I could see that working out. How has that worked out, though? Yeah, well, so the reality is that most places that have implemented it, it's worked out terribly. Uh, and the reason that it's worked out terribly is that it was implemented with relatively harsh zero tolerance policing tactics. 
so the big places that, that this has been implemented that, that we have a lot of data on um, is primarily New York and New Jersey. And what happened is, first of all, the community becomes disaffected because they feel like they're consistently being harassed by police over very trivial things. Uh, they, police officers often, uh, especially in New York, for example, uh, throughout the 1980s and 1990s, officers in New York were instructed to go and stop people, to frisk them, to get their identification, to run a warrant check, to make sure that they didn't have any outstanding warrants. Uh, it was sort of a consistent level of street harassment of people who seemed to be doing very little wrong other than gathering in groups or loitering, which just means sort of standing around on street corners. Uh, and so this created a lot of tension between the, the people being policed and the police. And the reality of the situation, by the way, that I just I have to explain is uh, in New York, ultimately, this style of policing, the way that it was being implemented uh, was found to be unconstitutional because it was also being implemented in extremely systemically racist ways. Uh, the police moved, deployed much more frequently to minority neighborhoods. Uh, they stopped minority residents at a much higher rate uh, than they stopped white residents. And yet the, they were less likely to find any evidence of wrongdoing when they stopped a minority than when they stopped a white person. Uh, so the pattern that they had developed over time disproportionately impacted people of color for no actual policing benefit. Uh, and so that led to a lot more of the sort of distrust that we're used to as well, is that just the way that it was implemented ultimately uh, was really disproportionately harmful to minority communities. Uh, and so for the most part, that's a theory now that uh, has kind of been tossed by the wayside, or at least was shown to not work as it was implemented, uh, which isn't to say that there's not merit behind the theory. I think we can all envision you know, our little Stepford Wives suburban utopia where everybody has perfectly manicured grass and nobody breaks any of the rules. Uh, I think that's sort of where the goal is to be. But it's unlikely that that's an applicable reality, the way that policing is implemented. So circling back to uh, community policing, one of the um, ideas that I've seen getting a lot of traction in the last couple of weeks um, I, I don't think it's a new idea. I think it's just getting a lot of traction right now is that uh, people want to have a requirement that the people that are policing their community are actually mm -hmm. members of their community and not living, you know, two towns away. And so there's there's some definite challenges there, but I wanted to get your thoughts on it because, you know, like maybe you don't have the money to be able to hire the guy that lives in, you know, um, your, uh, you know, your million dollar home community to be uh, a police force guy. Yeah. <laughs> you got to hire the guy that lives two towns away because he's the guy that's going to take $35,000 a year as an entry salary. Yeah. So it's interesting because I, I tend to hear the argument for it coming a little bit the other way which is that uh, one of the big arguments about it is actually that there's a transfer of wealth out of minority communities and to the more affluent communities. Uh, the idea being that people grew, who grew up in relatively poor neighborhoods where um, the level of policing was oppressive are not going to aspire to be police officers someday, right? They're going to grow up believing that the police are sort of their enemy at some level, or at least 
aren't part of what their goal in life is. And so the the more common scenario that I hear is actually um, dense urban areas, for example, like Detroit. Uh, in order to get officers who want to police Detroit, you end up hiring from the wider, more affluent suburbs. And so the folks who live in Detroit pay taxes to the department. Uh, the department pays salaries to the employees, and then the employees take their salaries and they like buy homes in the suburbs. They you know, spend their money in the suburbs. And so it's actually a transfer of wealth out of um, some of the poorer neighborhoods into some of the wealthier neighborhoods. But your point is well taken, right? I also think that if you grow up exceedingly wealthy, you might not want a blue collar job um, either. So it, it could work both ways. I think in general, it's something nice to aspire to. I think it would be hard to make that a requirement. I mean, I, I simply think that right now, the reality of policing is that most departments nationwide are struggling to recruit at a high enough rate. Uh, the amount of training time that officers get is not as high as many people would like. Uh, the sort of level of experience necessary before people get dropped off um, to do some policing on their own is not as high as many would like. All of that takes significant investment. And right. So, so they need they need boots on the ground, right? If they don't have someone in uniform, at least showing the colors. Yeah. So to, to yeah. add on top of that, some notion that everybody who polices a particular neighborhood needs to come from that neighborhood. It would make some neighborhoods simply not policeable. Uh, it, it. I think that one of the things that's that the academic research suggests, however, is that the biggest impediment to recruiting uh, for police departments comes from the level of negative publicity that's in the popular media. And a lot of that is tied to excessive use of force cases. So one of the sort of, we have this chicken and egg problem, which is people think of improving recruiting and improving the locality of recruiting as a way of reducing those kinds of cases because people would better understand their communities. They'd be less likely to see each other as a potential enemy or as a potential threat. Uh, but you're not going to be able to improve recruiting until the police departments get a better reputation because uh, a lot of people are hesitant to join up to a department that's uh, frankly under siege in terms of public opinion. So what does jury of your peers actually mean then? In the jury context or in the policing context? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I kind of see them as similar issues, right? So, you know, uh, if, if we're having cops come in from out of town and we're having jurists come in from out of town, then what, like, it, it, it seems to be an inconsistency for me. Yeah, I mean, the thought process is supposed to be that uh, the law should be the same wherever you are, right? So the, I am governed here in downtown Phoenix by the same rules that would govern me if I lived, you know, three miles away in a relatively rural or suburban neighborhood. Um, so theoretically, it shouldn't be a matter of the police setting different kinds of rules for different kinds of people. Uh, we know that as a matter of practice, that happens uh, more frequently than most people would like. But the other bit of it is simply that the thought behind community policing isn't just that you are being evaluated or judged by your peers. But realistically, the thought is that there's the police are going to be more effective at their jobs if they have meaningful bonds with the community. And so I don't think that that's about strictly hiring people who are from your neighborhood, but it might be about changing up things like rotation patterns. Uh, 
So the particular patrols that officers are provided uh, tend to be assigned on seniority basis in a lot of departments, which means that the more inexperienced officers get assigned to the more dangerous neighborhoods, the more challenging environments. Uh, and they get, as soon as a new open, you know, a new, uh, opening is available, they change patrols and now they're in a new neighborhood with new residents. And so some of that might mean, you know, sticking people on particular beats longer. It might mean changing it up so that the folks who are more experienced and have, you know, that are better equipped to deal with a, a challenging population have the sort of time and resources necessary to get to know that population. There's things like that that could be happening at the departmental level and that are happening in, in some departments. I don't want to make it sound like I'm, you know, making all of this up as the, you know, silver bullet solution. But I think there's stuff like that that could still accomplish some of the community policing goals, uh, even if we're not able to recruit and retain from within particular neighborhoods or within particular populations that are being policed. I think one of the things that, that you kind of touched on was, again, the importance of the community police relationship. And it made me think back to Tennessee v. Garner. Mm -hmm. um, for our listeners, Tennessee v. Garner was a Supreme Court case in the 80s. Um, a lot of procedural stuff that's not super relevant to what we're going to talk about. But the crux of it was a, a 15 or 16-year-old African-American kid in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, fled from police. Police were called to a neighborhood. Um, I believe it was either a suspicious person or a burglary. Um, they pulled up. The Mr. The 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 fifteen or sixteen year old kid ran, and a Memphis police officer shot him in the back of the head as he was climbing a fence. It was found that the kid had uh, maybe ten dollars in an empty purse. And one of the quotes from, from one of the opinions in it, and I believe it came from Justice O'Connor, was that if he valued his life, he wouldn't have ran. Paraphrased a little bit. Yeah. Um, ben, I know that this is a case you know quite a bit about. Can you give us a little bit of backstory? Why, why did that kid run? Well, yeah. So one of the things that uh, people need to understand, and this is sometimes hard when we go back and we're thinking about past cases, especially, I mean... Uh, I don't know how old you guys are. I, I don't feel that old yet. And so, the, you know, this happened in 1974. It's sometimes hard for me to even understand the level of racial tension that was happening in Memphis in 1974. But uh, the reason that kid ran, frankly, is that the Memphis Police Department was notoriously racist. Uh, so the person who did the shooting in that case was an officer by the name of Elton Hyman. And Officer Hyman, uh, it was his first year on the force, if I remember correctly. Uh, but he is a black police officer in a primarily white police department uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, where racial tensions were super high. This is uh, a handful of years after the civil rights movement. And he had he would eventually have to explain to people some of the things that he observed while working for the Memphis PD, which included that uh, white officers would do things like notch marks on their gun whenever they killed a, a black suspect. Um, they would make jokes about that. They would carry what was known as a drop gun with them so that if they ever felt like they needed an excuse to uh, explain why they shot someone, they could just put uh, a gun on the body of the person that they killed and would get away with it for the most part. 
the reason this ever became a case, the, the Tennessee versus Garner case is so well known now, but the reason that it happened at all is that uh, Elton Lamon didn't participate in any of those things, right? He probably had an opportunity to cover his tracks. And instead, he came forward and said, no, I shot this kid. He was running away. He didn't have a gun or a weapon that I saw. He wasn't attacking me. Uh, I shot him in the back of the head as he was climbing a fence to flee. But certainly, right, if you were Garner in that case, if you were you know, a 15-year-old kid who had just uh, robbed a house and stolen basically nothing of value, but you knew the police were outside, uh, it is almost certainly a rational choice to flee rather than stand there and wait to see what they might do to you. I, I, I want to highlight, I mean, I think one of the reasons we talk about this case so much is that uh, I, I think that people need to understand the challenges that we face when we're talking about police reform, because we've come, in one sense, a long way from the kind of explicit racism and huge racial tensions uh, that marked the 1960s and 1970s, which was the time period when a lot of the law about policing got developed, about what the rules were for police and what they're allowed to do and not allowed to do. Uh, I think in general, departments are striving to be more equitable in their policing. Uh, the, the people who study policing uh, across all spectrums, uh, including in law, are trying to find ways to make, make the institution overall more racially fair to make the practice more just, but a lot of the rules that we have uh, and a lot of the sort of public resentment for policing has developed over time because of a history of policing that is particularly problematic, honestly. Uh, and not just in, in this sense, I, I don't wanna go too far afield, but one of the things that I teach my class on policing is, is in the American South, the history of policing developed frankly, from uh, informal slave patrols, which were people who were simply tasked with the job of keeping an eye out for slaves who weren't where they supposed to be and responding to that with violence. Um, they even wore little like, you know, six star badges um, on their chests, the way that a lot of sheriff's departments now do, right? The same kind of model. Uh, it's, it, it's really sort of horrific if you think back to the idea that um, for some portion of our country, the institution of policing was, was explicitly an institution of racial oppression. Uh, and then for the next segment of time, the institution of policing was an institution that turned a blind eye to individualized racial oppression. And so now we're in a time period where what we're looking at is more systemic uh, racial inequalities. And that is, we can see patterns of behavior that might not be attributable to individual officers or even to individual department or cultures, but we're struggling with how do you overcome that? How do you make it a more equitable profession so that people aren't as afraid of the police, honestly, who are more likely to call the police to help them um, rather than to fear police involvement? Like that's one of the things that's it's a huge struggle is sometimes the communities that might need the most assistance from police are also the communities that are least likely to call them because historically what they've received is not help. Absolutely. Um, um, 
I think I think we've kind of reached the the more or less natural natural conclusion of these two topics. We definitely want to have you back to talk about the Fourth Amendment. Um, for those who don't know, Professor McJunkin's been cited in the Supreme Court um, on Fourth Amendment issues. He's got a, a wealth of knowledge. Um, that's going to be a whole another hour, hour and a half. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can't wait for that. I love I love talking constitutional stuff. Excellent. Yeah, I would be happy to. Professor McDonough, do you have anything, anything else you, you want to say or anything else on these topics that you think is important for our, for our listeners to, to understand? No, I just want to say thank you guys for having me on. I mean, I love the opportunity to just get to, to chat with you all to help educate your listeners. I'm uh, always excited and amazed that there are people out there who want to spend their free time listening to Law Geeks Geek It Up, which is really what I think we're doing. Uh, oh, I, makes me very happy. Oh, that's absolutely incredible. Everyone, um, you know, you can follow Professor McJunkin on Twitter at Ben McJunkin. Follow the ASU Academy for Justice at Academy for Justice, letter four or number four. Um, or follow us as well at Bullshito. We have forums, we have website, we have a store with nothing in it right now. Check it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. And so it's uh, McJunkin, that's uh, Mike, Charlie, uh, Juliet, Uniform, November, Kilo, Indo, uh, India, November, McJunk. That's good. Yes. Yeah. And that uh, the, the J is capitalized as well. So it's capital M, capital J. All right. Well, awesome. so, Professor. Well, we really appreciate your time, Professor. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. This has I'm, been I'm, uh, enlightening. Uh, <laughs>